Welcome to Gaia's Love, a podcast of brief messages to help humanity bridge the gap to the new earth. My name is Vivian Gerard. It is my delight to be a scribe for consciousness today, sharing the wisdom that flows through from source. Here we go. Episode 68. It is Wednesday here in Cincinnati. It's a little cloudy, a little quiet, a lot quiet. <laughs> we took Star to daycare today, and the house is just so still. It's this amazing little gift in the middle of the week. And yeah, it feels like there's a pause for several people, many people. I've heard from a couple already this morning, like, I wanted to just stay in bed and sleep all day. I didn't want to get out of bed. And it does feel like that kind of a day, you know, just curl up with all the energies that are moving and be still for a little while and feel into what what is shifting for all of us. When I was meditating, trying to determine which direction to go for today's podcast, my mind was literally bouncing like this or that or this, (laughs) all these different ideas, which makes me laugh because I was so worried I wouldn't have anything to share in this space. And apparently there's a lot to share, but the one I kept hearing over and over is broken open. And so I picked up my, one of my favorite, favorite books It's called Broken Open. It's by Elizabeth Lesser, who is the founder and owner, CEO, leader, not quite sure of her title, at the Omega Institute in New York. Her life's work has literally been to meet the greatest teachers on our planet and hang out with them and host workshops with them and learn from them. I mean, what a life. (laughs) What a life she called in. It's just amazing. So her book, Broken Open, it's a subtitle is How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. I read it, my goodness, six years ago, five years ago, and I have given many copies of this book as gifts. It is just an incredible collection of stories from her journey, and she's organized them in a way that you feel like you're sitting talking to one of your best friends, and she's just sharing another beautiful nugget with you. It's absolutely beautiful. And I've had the book for a while thinking I wanted to share something in this space and it never felt quite right. And today it does. So I'm going to read to you two sections, the introduction, like the very first things that she says, the first few pages, and then the first story that she shares in chapter one and, or part one. Part one, the title is The Call of the Soul. And then she has a few stories that follow that theme. So sit back, relax, let me tell you the story of Elizabeth Lesser, or at least what she's sharing with us. Okay, so here's her introduction. Some years ago, I took a trip to the city of Jerusalem, where centuries are layered in stones and streets are carved into the layers twisting and turning in haphazard patterns that divide and connect neighborhoods 
markets, mosques, temples, and churches. One morning in that broken city, I sat alone on a well-worn wall at the base of the Mount of Olives. The day was moving forward with the kind of determination that comes from people with places to go and things to do. Religious pilgrims pushed past, past each other into the gates of the holy city. Men and women made their way to work and market. Children ran past them to school, but I had nowhere to go. The group I was traveling with in Jerusalem had risen early for the day's planned itinerary. I'd stayed behind. I could no longer keep up the charade that I was part of their adventure. I wasn't here to visit sacred sites or to walk the stations of the cross, wail at the western wall, or chant the 99 names of Allah. No, I was here to further delay making a decision about my life at home. I had come to Jerusalem only because my friend, who was leading the trip, was worried enough about me to pay the fare, which worried me enough to fly halfway around the world to a city as mixed up as myself. Now I was here, but really, I was still back there, at home in New York, scared and confused about my crumbling marriage. Wandering deeper into the walled old city, I came to an ancient alleyway lined with shops selling religious artifacts for the Western pilgrim. Normally, I would veer away from these kinds of stores. Inspirational sayings stitched in needlepoint or Virgin Mary coffee mugs seemed no different to me than those velvet Elvis paintings you see at flea markets. But I needed help. I needed inspiration, even from a coffee cup or an embroidered pillow or from Elvis himself. One narrow, dusky shop appealed to me, and I went in. On the floor was a patchwork of Persian rugs. On the walls hung small paintings, some of saints and prophets, others of mountains and flowers. Was this a gallery, a rug store, a gift shop? I couldn't tell. In the back of the long room, drinking tea at a low table, sat two Arab men dressed in white captains. One was a stooped and aged gentleman, and the other, his son perhaps, was a mysterious-looking character with gleaming eyes and long black hair, like the mane of a well-groomed horse. After a while, the son put down his tea and came forward to greet me. Fixing his gaze on me, as if trying to read the secrets of my heart, or the contents of my purse, he said in perfect English, Come, you will like this picture. Taking my hand, he led me around piles of rugs to the back of the store, near where his father was sitting. The old man stood and shuffled over to meet me. He placed his right hand on his heart and bowed his head in the traditional Islamic greeting. Look, he said, pointing at a small painting hanging on the wall. He touched my arm with the kindness of a grandfather. See the rose? He asked, turning me towards the picture. There, framed in dark wood, was the ethereal image of a rosebud, with shimmering pale petals holding one another in a tight embrace. Under the flower was an inscription that read, and the time came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Unexpected tears stung my eyes as I read the words. The two men hovered around me, more like bodyguards than salesmen. I turned away from them, hiding my face in the shadows. I was afraid that if the old man showed me one more ounce of mercy, I would break down in a stranger's store thousands of miles from home. What is wrong? the long-haired man asked. Nothing is wrong. I said I'm fine. No, something is wrong, the man said. You are in pain. What do you mean? I asked, suspicious yet curious. Was he a con man trying to sell me the painting? 
Or is my heartache that palpable, my story so easily read? I felt exposed, as if the long-haired man was a spy of the soul who knew all about my marriage, my two little boys, and the crazy mess my husband and I had made of our life together. What do you mean? I asked again. I looked at the men. They stared back at me. We stood in silence, and then the long-haired man repeated, You are in pain. Do you know why? No, why? I asked, even though I certainly did know why. Because you are afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of yourself, the man said, placing his hand on his chest and patting his heart. You are afraid to feel your real feelings. You are afraid to want what you really want. What do you want? You mean the painting? You think I want the painting? I asked, suddenly confused and desperate to get away from the smell of the rugs and the intensity of the man. I don't want the painting, I said, making my way towards the door. The man followed me to the front of the shop. He stood directly in front of me, took my own hand, and put it over my heart. I don't mean the painting, he said kindly. I mean what the painting says. I mean that your heart is like the flower. Let it break open. What you want is waiting for you in your own heart. The time has come. May Allah bless you. Then he slipped back into the darkness. I pulled open the door, stepped out into the bright and bustling day, and wound my way through the circling streets to my hotel. Once in my room, although it was noon and 90 degrees, I ran a bath. As I rested in the tub, the words under the painting echoed through my mind. Somehow, the long-haired man had seen into me and named the source of my pain. I was like the rosebud, holding myself together, tight and tense, terrified of breaking open. But the time had come. Even if I was risking everything to blossom, the man was right. It was time for me to find out what I really wanted. Not what my husband wanted, not what I thought my children needed, not what my parents expected, not what society said was good or bad. It was time for me to step boldly into the fullness of life with all of its dangers and all of its promises. Remaining tight in a bud had become a kind of death. The time had come to blossom. It's beautiful, right? The way she writes is incredible. Simply incredible. All right, I'm going to continue with the next story, the chapter, part one story called The Call of the Soul, because it feels like it takes this just a little further, and and then you need to buy the book and read it yourself. (laughs) All right, here is what she says, The Call of the Soul. Many of us feel uncomfortable revealing to others, and even to ourselves, what lies beneath the surface of our day-to-day consciousness. We get out of bed in the morning and begin again where we left off yesterday attacking life as if we were waging a campaign of control and survival. All the while, deep within us, flows an endless river of pure energy. It sings a low and rich song that hints of joy and liberation and peace. Up on top as we make our way through life, we may sense the presence of the river. We may feel a subtle longing to connect with it. But we are usually moving too fast or we are distracted, or we fear disturbing the status quo of our surface thoughts and feelings. It can be unsettling to dip below the familiar and descend into the more mysterious realms of the soul. 
I use the word soul because I have found no other word that describes as well the river of energy that animates who we are. I have heard the river called the life force or consciousness or God, but I prefer soul because of the way it sounds and the way it tastes as it rolls around in my mouth. That reason, however, may not be good enough for some people. Searching for the kind of data that a scientist might respect, I have read books and listened to lectures by researchers who try to explain and quantify the soul. Physicists like David Baum and Fritjof Capra, medical doctors like Deepak Chopra and Larry Dossi, and biologists like Candace Pert and Rupert Sheldrake. All of these thinkers and authors are fascinating and I recommend their research to anyone who would find it helpful to back up a spiritual sense of the soul with some hard science. Rupert Sheldrake's work is my favorite, although I barely understand what he is talking about in most of his books. A biochemist and cell biologist formerly at Cambridge University, he is the author of some groundbreaking books, including A New Science of Life and The Sense of Being Stared At and Other Aspects of the Extended Mind. Sheldrake describes the soul as a morphic field or an invisible formative field that underlies the activity of all life. At an Omega lecture, I once heard him say, if we compare the dead body of a person or animal or plant with the living state that preceded it, we note that the amount of matter in the dead body is the same as in the living body. The form of the body is also the same, and so are the chemicals in it, at least immediately after death. But something has changed. The most obvious conclusion is that something has left the body, and since there's no change in weight, that which has left is essentially immaterial. That immaterial something can be called the soul. We may not be able to hold it in our hands, but the soul is real. We may not know what form it will take when our bodies die, but I believe the soul lives on. If you are in the habit of negating the longings of the soul, or if the idea of having a soul makes you nervous, or if you regard the whole subject with raised eyebrows, you may want to consider Rumi's advice. When you do something from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a joy. If you know what Rumi is talking about, then I say that you are in touch with your soul. And if his words bring up sadness or cynicism or anxiety, then I say that you too are in possession of a living soul, one that is sending you messages on behalf of your own life. The stories in this part of the book are about what it takes to listen to and respond to the call of the soul. Your soul is always sending messages. If you regularly paint or sing or write poetry or listen to uplifting music, or if you meditate and pray, or if you walk in nature or move your body in sports or dance, you know what it feels like when you and your soul are in contact. You feel a river moving in you, a joy. You can also feel that river flowing when you reach out and help someone in need, when you are in love, when you come through the fire of a difficult endeavor, or when you finally surrender to a painful situation, when you stop fighting the fear and heartache and you give over the reins to something greater, when you tire of your own constriction and you open come what may to the flow of life, you and your soul become one and you feel a river moving in you, a joy. Yet so often we resist the pull of the river. We tune out the call of the soul. 
perhaps we fear what the soul would have to say about choices we have made, habits we have formed, and decisions we are avoiding. Perhaps if we quieted down and asked the soul for direction, we would be moved to make a big change. Maybe that wild river of energy with its longing for joy and freedom would capsize our more prudent plans, our ambitions, our very survival. Why should we trust something as indeterminate as a soul? And so we shut down. I have shut down to my soul enough times to know what it feels like when the river is dammed. I know the feeling of deadness. I know how the river diverts itself and breaks through in other ways, as a desire to blame, as an emotion of anger, as physical illness, as restlessness or weariness or self-destruction. The soul always speaks. And sometimes it speaks the loudest when we block its flow, when we live only half of a life, when we stay on the surface. If we don't listen to the voice of the soul, it sings a stranger tune. If we don't go looking for what lies beneath the surface of our lives, the soul comes looking for us. Thank you, Elizabeth Lesser, for those incredible words. Thank you for tuning in to today's vibration. Let's take this message of pure love out into all of our communities and continue expanding love here on Gaia. So much love from my heart to yours.